Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Matthias Desmet, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Um, I was introduced to your work from Dr. Robert Malone. I think he popularized the term, at least briefly, mass formation psychosis. Uh, after his appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, I got really intrigued with that notion and started studying a bit of it historically. Um, you know, human, humanity has gone through several of these mass psychosis events, and it seems like we are perhaps embroiled in one today as well. In your book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, uh, does a great job of just really laying out where we've come in our scientific understanding of the world, how that's become manifest in our technological realities, and how all of that has a feedback into, I guess, our psychological reality. Um, and I would like to just start with, for, for my audience who's perhaps not familiar with your work, could you just give us a brief introduction um, of your background and how you got into studying the field of psychology and mass psychosis more specifically? Yes, yes. So I, I, I got a master in uh, clinical psychology. I graduated at Ghent University in uh, 2003, I think, and then I started to do a PhD. And first I intended to do some research um, in the field of clinical psychology, but uh, as soon as I started, I noticed that many of the research methods actually were very questionable or, or and the results very often, in my opinion, were flawed. And I, I decided to study the, re the research method methods themselves in, rather than doing just a classical, uh, classical uh, research study. And um, when I, after two years, so in 2005, the so-called replication crisis in the sciences started. And exactly this was shown in the replication crisis, namely that across all academic fields, um, a lot of research um, was extremely 
flawed and uh, most of the research methods or, or, or many studies used so-called sloppy methods so methods that that couldn't lead to reliable or valid uh, scientific findings for instance in the in the field of the, in, in the medical sciences up to 80 up to 85 percent of the studies proved completely completely wrong which is huge of course and um i wrote a book about this phenomenon that that, that was my first book and in in this book i gave really very concrete examples showing why most published research findings were false. Um, and to my surprise, I noticed that uh, most of my colleagues really, rather than opening their eyes, started to become angry with, angry with me. And they just continued doing the same research as they did before. And that was the moment where I got interested in mass psychology. In mass psychology, because in my in, because I had the impression that the only thing that could explain why some people become so radically blind for everything that goes against what they believe in uh, was uh, situated at the level of group psychology, at the level of individual psychology, you cannot explain this kind of extreme blindness. And then um, I, st I started to be interested in mass psychology. I started to lecture about it as well, uh, somewhere in. 2013, I think. Um, so at that moment, I had like three major uh, academic interests. Uh, individual psychology and, psych and processes in psychotherapy. Uh, statistics, because I, I also got a master in statistics, just because I wanted to be as well informed as possible about the mathematical basis of academic research. And then uh, also mass psychology. And when the Corona crisis started, as if it was as if I went through this entire process again, but in a faster way. So at first, I in the first during the first days of the crisis, I started to study the statistics, and I immediately had the impression that they were often blatantly wrong. And then I, in the first weeks, I tried to show people. I, I started to write opinion papers immediately in the Corona crisis. And throughout the first weeks or the first few months, I tried to show people uh, that the statistics were wrong and that the, the, the mathematical models used, for instance, the mathematical models of uh, issued by Imperial College, uh, dramatically overrated the dangerousness of the virus and that uh, we were blind or the society was blind for the costs, the, the, the victims claimed by the, by the corona mandates and the corona measures. All this kind of stuff I tried to show people uh, um, what, in my opinion, uh, went wrong and where the statistics were wrong, where the figures were, were wrong, why the narrative or the story didn't add up. And I noticed immediately the same as I noticed before uh, at university, namely that people simply refused to see um, all evidence that showed that uh, the narrative was, um, uh, in many respects, uh, utterly absurd. And that was the moment where I decided to, to switch my focus. And um, rather than trying to show people why the statistics were wrong, I tried to show people uh, what psychological processes were going on in society, which could explain why so many people um, continue to, to, to buy into the narrative, uh, even when uh, it was actually already proven that the narrative was wrong. For instance, 
the, the initial models, the mathematical models uh, of Imperial College predicted that by the end of May 2020, the coronavirus would claim something like 60 to 80,000 victims uh, in small countries such as Sweden, if the country didn't go into lockdown. And by the end of May 2020, Sweden hadn't gone into lockdown and only 6,000 people died. Uh, and But even that didn't make a difference, didn't have an impact. Um, so at that moment, I started to, to, to really to, 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 to think about how I could summarize uh, the very complex uh, theory on mass formation as I knew it from the literature um, in such a way that even lay people, people who were not trained as psychologists or who were not familiar with mass formation could understand it. And um, I tried several months in a row and I was desperate uh, 100 times because I had the feeling that, that it was impossible to, to, to summarize this in a nutshell, in a concise way. Uh, and somewhere in August, I think, of 2020, one night I woke up, I had a feeling that I saw or that I suddenly uh, knew how I could put, summarize this theory in a very concise way, in a new way also, because I don't think uh, someone before me has formulated it exactly like that, definitely not. Uh, and from there on, I, it, it spread first in Belgium and Holland very quickly, and then uh, also um, in other countries. Um, hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. Um, it's certainly a difficult topic to understand because no one wants to believe that they're crazy individually, much less collectively. Um, if I could, I'll, I'll read uh, just a few of these. These are mass, a brief summary of mass formation psychosis, uh, of which totalitarianism is just one form, I guess, the most extreme form. And um, I'll read just a couple of these. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I have totalitarianism is characterized by a process, by processes of large scale mass formation. Four conditions are needed for large scale mass formation psychosis. One, a large amount of people must feel alone and isolated. Two, their lives must feel pointless and meaningless. Three, there must be high levels of free floating anxiety. And four, there must be high levels of free-floating frustration and aggression. So how is it that, what is it about these preconditions that contributes to the formation of mass psychosis? And in what ways is the modern, uh, I guess, lifestyle up to and including the past two years of lockdowns contributing to these uh, prerequisites for mass psychosis? Well, uh, it's important to, to, to know that uh, these four conditions existed already before the corona crisis. So, and that was exactly the reason why suddenly in the corona crisis, for the first time in history, a worldwide phenomenon of mass formation emerged in, in the population or in society. Exactly because the population was in, the, was in this specific state where it becomes very vulnerable for mass formation. And indeed, the most, the most crucial and the most fundamental 
uh, precondition is definitely that a large part of the population has to feel disconnected, lonely, disconnected from its natural and social environment. So that's the most fundamental precondition. And from this condition, all the rest follows. Once people feel disconnected, they will start to be confronted with lack of meaning making in life. Uh, and once they feel disconnected and struggle with experiences of, uh, of, of, of lack of purpose in life, they will typically uh, change at the affective level. They will be confronted with specific emotional experiences, namely this freely floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression you referred to. Um, so, but then, then just before the corona crisis, the population was definitely in this condition because over 30% of the people worldwide reported to feel lonely. And this problem, very interesting and very important, uh, was correlated to the level of industrialization and the level of technology use in a, in a, in a country. So the more technology mm -hmm. and the more industrialization, the more people feel disconnected and lonely. Um, and then, uh, so, so from these conditions, once these conditions are fulfilled in, in society, well, it's just something very specific happens. If under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, a narrative that indicates an object of anxiety, and at the same time provides a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, and something specific happens, all this free-floating anxiety will connect to the object of anxiety, and there will be a huge willingness to participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, even if this strategy is utterly absurd and self-destructive. And, you know, the reason why this happened with anxiety, free-floating anxiety, which they cannot attribute to a certain cause or a certain object, they feel completely out of control from anxiety if you don't know the object of the anxiety. Once this narrative is distributed and people, for instance, a virus, and once they start to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, for instance, the lockdowns, they feel in control again. So that's the first very important step. And from then on, have an object at which they can direct all their frustration and aggression, which is also very important, which is also very important, of course, because if people feel frustrated and aggressive, and they, can, and they don't know what they feel frustrated and aggressive for, they just cannot direct this frustration and aggression. They cannot satisfy it. They cannot direct it at a certain object. So that's the first extremely important step. And this happens in every mass formation um, of ancient times and of modern times. And we've had the Crusades. We've had the witch hunts. We have, we've had the French Revolution Union in Nazi Germany, the first totalitarian states. Uh, but it's always the same. The first step is always that in a, when the population is in a very specific state, someone circulates a narrative which indicates an object of anxiety and provides a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety. That's the first step. And then in a second step, something even more important happens because many people participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety at the same time people feel connected again. They feel connected again in a heroic collective battle. So that, that, and in that way, it seems as if the most fundamental, the most basic psychological problem that existed before the mass formation, namely 
the loneliness and the disconnectedness is cured, disappeared. So, and you could say, of course, what's the problem? Well, there is a problem. There is all this frustration and aggression that is directed at the people who do not participate in the mass. But there is a second problem, which is even more fundamental, and it is that this new group, this mass, is a group that is formed not because people, because individuals connect to other individuals. This new group, this mass forms because all the individuals separately connect to the collective, meaning that this typical solidarity and this citizenship that is one of the most fundamental characteristics of every mass formation, this solidarity in a mass is not a solidarity between individuals. It's a solidarity of every individual separately with the collective. Mm. And even more, the longer the mass formation exists, the more all the love and all the energy and all the solidarity is sucked away from the bonds between the individuals and is injected, invested in the bond between the individual and the collective. Meaning that in the end, people feel that every individual should sacrifice everything for the sake of the collective. So the solidarity between individuals becomes very low and the solidarity of every individual with the collective becomes very high. And that explains why mm. every long, for instance, in the Corona crisis, this was very clear. We were all, many people were told, everyone was talking about solidarity, but at the same time, they accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help that person. And if someone, if someone's parents were dying in a hospital or no matter where, they accepted that they, that they were not allowed to visit their parents during their last hours uh, in this life. So that's a strange thing. The solidarity in a mass is very specific. It is a very specific nature. It's a solidarity with the collective. And, and of course, that's the reason why uh, if, a, if a mass formation continues for a long time, it typically ends up in a radically paranoid atmosphere where everyone snitches everyone, where everyone is prepared to report everyone to the state, even the people they loved most before the mass formation. There was this woman of Iran, uh, I had a conversation with her three months ago, and she told me how she had seen with her own eyes in Iran during the revolution of 1978, 1979, how she had seen with her own eyes when this revolution was a large scale phenomenon of mass formation, how she had seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state and how she hung the rope around his neck when he was on the scaffold. And once he died, how she claimed to be a heroine for reporting her son to the state. That's a typical end stage of a mass formation end of all totalitarianism, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union. They all ended up in an extremely typical paranoid atmosphere. And that's just because totalitarian states, unlike classical dictatorships are based on mass formation. Wow. <clears throat> that is um, quite uh, alarming. The, the little story there at the end with the mother and the son. Um, it seems like, and you mentioned this earlier that the individual solidarity, it's not between indiv individuals, actually, it's the solidarity between the individual. And I think you said the collective, which you also call in your book, you know, the story or the narrative, or one could even say the mythology, right? There's 
there's a, mm. myth, a mythological structure that we inhabit. Um, and as individuals, that story really guides our lives in a lot of way. It, it tells us, you know, what the proper behavior is with one another, what the cultural norms are. Um, so it, uh, one way I think about this is that it seems like each of us is running some type of software package. We have some cognitive software going on in our minds, but that external story, that, that narrative is, um, I guess, kind of like the distributed cultural database we're plugging ourselves into in a way. So is there some relationship? And it seems because it, the other thing about this mass formation psychosis is it always seems to involve the state apparatus to some extent. And individuals within the state are attempting to write that narrative or control that narrative or select certain statistics and numbers that, you know, especially in the modern mass psychosis that support that narrative. We almost have this dogmatism uh, towards science or, or science or mathematics today. Um, is that the proper framing for something like this is it, you know are we, we're connecting all of our individual minds or plugging our minds individually into this collective database for lack of a better uh, analogy that is culture or the state or the narrative itself but then if that narrative is uh, i guess tilted or controlled or manipulated that it's almost it's used as a means of, of psychologically operating in people, right? You can, you can twist the narrative one direction or another and, and create these very um, unexpected individual outcomes like you described with a mother and her son. Is that um, a proper framing for something like this? To a certain extent it is, but it's always good to keep in mind that a mass formation is a, a complex dynamical phenomenon. It's an emergent phenomenon. It can emerge in many different ways. Sometimes it emerges in a completely spontaneous way, without any intention or indoctrination or propaganda or something. For instance, in, the, in Nazi Germany, it seems that uh, the mass formation, where a certain part of the population got in, fanatically in the grip of a certain race theory, saying that uh, German people, German race was superior to other, to other races. It seemed that this mass formation started spontaneously. And that after a while, once more and more people started to become in the grip of this uh, idea, of this ideology, slowly certain people in the mass took the lead. Usually they were very talented speakers. They took the lead of the masses. And together with the masses, they established this diabolic pact between the masses and their leaders and seized control of society. And in that way, a totalitarian system emerged in, uh, in Nazi Germany. In a totalitarian system, there is always, there's always a system which is based on mass formation. Like a classical dictatorship is not based on mass formation. In a classical dictatorship, there is just a small group of people, this dictatorial regime. Uh, of which people are so scared that they accept that this dictatorial regime Im imposes unilaterally its social contract to society. Okay, doesn't matter, but so 
In Nazi Germany, it seems that the mass formation emerged in a spontaneous way. In the Soviet Union, for instance, this other famous example of a totalitarian state of in the first half of the 20th century, the mass formation uh, was provoked intentionally by the elite. So while in Nazi Germany, the mass formation was first and the elite emerged from the mass formation, in the Soviet Union, it was the other way around. There was first the elite, uh, a, a group of intellectuals who fanatically believed in the historical materialist theory of Marx, and who succeeded through indoctrination propaganda, first small scale, then larger scale, who succeeded in to create, who, who created artificially a mass formation in the population. So there was first the elite, then the mass formation. Soviet Union, the end result is exactly the same. There is like a pact between an elite and a mass and the two together, um, seize control of society. So ma a mass formation can emerge in, in, in a lot of different ways. Sometimes completely spontaneously, sometimes it is intentionally provoked. Um, it is important to know that the ancient, that, that mass formation exists, as I uh, mentioned already a few minutes ago, uh, as long as mankind exists, but the modern masses are different from the ancient masses. And Ancient, well, while the ancient masses were physical masses, that means masses in which the individuals that constitute the mass uh, gather physically, come together physically, the modern masses usually are so-called lonely masses. That means masses in which all the individuals um, are isolated from each other, but all in the grip of the same narratives, the same images, the same myths, and so on. And, it's, it's, it's a, and, and this can only be created when there are mass media. You need mass media, you need mass media to have an impact on a huge amount of people who are all isolated from each other. So that's what the mass media created the so-called lonely masses. So mass media in all the large scale mass formations that emerged since the 19th century and that ultimately led to the emergence of the large totalitarian systems and all these mass formations, the mass media played a crucial role. You can never create a very long lasting uh, mass formation and you can never control it and steer it, manipulate it in a certain direction without mass media. So that happens constantly. The mass media uh, create the narratives that control the population. And from the beginning of the 20th century onwards, this was done in a very intentional way. If you read the work of uh, people as uh, Trotter, Lippmann, uh, also Edward Bernays, the nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, these guys are considered to be the, the founding fathers of modern propaganda. They will all, uh, uh, in their work, you will read that they are convinced that uh, the only way to control the masses is through propaganda. The ancient masses were controlled by the leaders. Before the, let's say, 17th century, the leaders of society were truly leaders. They imposed their will to the masses and they could control the masses. But from the 19th century onwards, onwards, with the emergence of the modern democratic systems, uh, 
uh, the, the political leaders were followers because they had to be elected by the masses and, ha- and then they, they, they had no other option than to give the masses what they wanted. And in the beginning of the 20th century, there were uh, certain people, the ones I, I just named, so Bernays, Trotman, Lippmann, and some others of, our, of course as well, who had, who recognized that society was dealing with a problem there. The masses were irrational and the masses were aggressive and self and destructive and self-destructive. And there were no leaders anymore who could impose their will to the masses. And so these guys concluded that we had to construct a huge propaganda machinery to constantly manipulate the masses uh, and to protect society from the masses. But the strange thing was, of course, what these uh, people forgot was that the people who um, lead the masses usually fall prey to the masses. That means that while they hypnotize the masses, the masses also hypnotize them. And after a short while, they become as aggressive and as destructive uh, as the masses themselves. So that's something very typical. And you can see this very clearly in in the work of someone like Edward Bernays, while in the beginning he claimed that he that propaganda should be used to protect the masses against themselves, after a while you could clearly see that he used propaganda to his own advantage and that he used the masses um, uh, to reach his own goals. So that's a strange thing. Uh, that's where propaganda originated. And, and, and now it, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, we are, what we are dealing with now in society is a huge, huge propaganda machinery, which, uh, which indeed, uh, 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 controls um, to a large extent uh, the way in which uh, uh, we think, the way in which um, we behave. Uh, And then in a crisis such as the Corona crisis, you can see this very clearly. There is like an ideological uh, set of institutions with a certain ideology who try to impose their ideology to society and who use this propaganda machinery to eliminate and censor all voices uh, that go against um, uh, this ideology and go against uh, the narrative uh, which controls the masses. Many, many fascinating points there. Um, I, I'd like to understand a bit, uh, I guess, first about the historical mass psychoses and what, in what ways they are different from the modern mass psychosis that are built on the back of mass media, as you described. And I'm also curious, so I guess the question there would be, how has mass psychosis changed over time uh, in relation to our technological landscape? It seems like mass media enabled a new form of mass psychosis, right? And maybe this is related to the atomization of the individual or the atomized individual, I think is one of the terms used in your book where you can have someone, you know, isolated alone, but also with a, a uh, basically the ability to broadcast to each person individually, even though they're alone versus having to gather them all in the public square historically, for instance. And you've mentioned a couple of things here too, that I want to, that I think tie together. You mentioned the scientific replication crisis earlier. You now mentioned that something occurring where the masses and the rulers start to imitate one another in a way, right? That the masses go crazy. So the rulers go crazy mm-hmm. and there's a feedback loop there. I wonder if that's related to 
like someone like Rene Girard's mimetic theory that we're all, you know, we have mirror neurons. Are we all just kind of mirroring one another all the time? And does this just get out of control and something like a mass psychosis? Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that for now. And then I've got, I've got more questions after that. Yes. I, I want to, to mention something. I never used the term mass psychosis. I always preferred the term mass formation. Okay, um, thanks. Because I think both from an intellectual, a pragmatic, and, and also, well, an ethical point of view, it seems to be better to me to, to, to use a term like ma mass formation. But of course, the term mass psychosis is often used. That's true. And it shows some resemblances with the, with the psychotic state. Uh, that's, that's also true. Um, well, yes, well, there is definitely the, the, the question as to how the ancient, the modern masses differ from the ancient masses is very interesting, but highly complex. It's highly complex. A lot of things changed. Like, um, oh, there are a lot of similarities in a certain way. The process is still the same. Uh, and, 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 and many but, but, but at the same time, it has a different character now. And indeed, the most important difference I mentioned already, the most important difference is definitely uh, that the modern masses or lonely masses, where everyone is, where a mass can be formed while the individuals never meet physically. Uh, but, and of course, that's, you need mass media uh, to create such a lonely mass. Uh, the mass media offer extreme opportunities for mass formation or to, to, to control mass formation. Masses that physically meet uh, are much more difficult to control than isolated masses. And also like without mass media, there is no option to inject, to infuse uh, a, a narrative time and time again, two, three, four, five times a day, now with the present social media and with the present technology, with the contemporary technology, even much more, it's all day long. You constantly receive messages on your iPhone, on your, on your smartphone, uh, um, which all, which very often, for instance, during the Corona crisis, remind you time and time again uh, of, this, of, this, of this narrative, um, which um, led to the mass formation. So, um, the mass media make it possible to create a very long-lasting mass formation, and not only that, to manipulate the masses constantly in a certain direction. But even then, of course, even then, even with the contemporary mass media, uh, the control of the masses is never perfect, never. It's impossible. It's impossible. Mass, mass formation is really just like a starling swarm, is a complex dynamical system, and nobody, uh, nobody can control it in the end. Right. It's, it's, as, it can, as soon as it's, there is always the, the risk uh, in, a, in a complex dynamical system that the system goes in a so-called chaotic phase and, and then nobody can control it. It can go in all directions, no matter how impressive your manipulation machinery will be, it will fail. Uh, um, so, and I'm sure it will fail. It will fail, of course. You can clearly see that uh, the uh, narrative on the corona narrative, the, 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 the phenomenon of the corona crisis evolved in directions uh, that, were, that, are that are unexpected for everyone. 
Um, so uh, the modern masses are different. The, the major, the most important difference is that there are mass media now and that there is technology now. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, they are also identical to the masses of ancient times and uh, uh, they are uncontrollable in the end. Interesting. And, then, and um, just to the second part of that question, does as far as the replication crisis or the masses and the rulers mirroring one another, is that mimetic theory? Is that contributed or, or correlated any of that? Yeah. You know, um, there is something... Gustave Le Bon was the first one to study, I think he was the first one to study mass, mass formation in such a detailed and thorough way. And he, he described certain phenomena in a, in a mass or in a crowd, which are very characteristic. And uh, one, one of them is that in a mass, certain ideas, certain ways of thinking, also certain ways to formulate things, to articulate things, spreads like a lightning. In a mass, it's very strange. There is something like um, contamination of ideas. Everyone starts to use the same ideas and this happens in an extremely uh, short amount of time. This is and like, a, like trust the science was one perhaps that happened during the Corona thing. Trust the science. Yeah. Yes. Was that Stuff one of these like memes? That. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. So that's mimetic theory, I think, to a certain extent. Some, there is something that, yeah. Nobody can really understand that. It was also something that was known in ancient times and the more in the masses of, um, of in medieval masses and stuff, that it was very strange how a mass of suddenly everyone starts to walk in the same direction, everyone starts to gather, every, every, everybody starts to go to the same point as if they are all attracted, attracted by this emergent, emergent mass. Um, uh, it's very hard to explain that, extremely hard to explain that, but it's a very well, very well known phenomenon. Um, just like a starling swarm forms in the mm -hmm. air, when uh, suddenly all the starlings start to come together, they, they, they arrive from all directions and they come to the same point. Nobody knows how they know where they have to be, just like nobody knows why exactly uh, they start to, to behave as they do uh, and how, mm -hmm. how this, how, and, and, and how it is possible that uh, this swarm, no matter how large it is, uh, starts to move and behave in such a coordinated and harmonious way. So mass formation is really a strange phenomenon. It's, it's just like all complex dynamical phenomena. Uh, you can never understand it when you think in mechanist materialist um, uh, uh, terms. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to um double click on that example actually the the flock of uh, i think you said starlings right this is the uh flock of birds that basically looks like it's one organism right they, they kind of yes. move in this coordinated fashion when they fly it's quite the visual spectacle if you've never seen it before i have read um i'm not sure how they know where to gather and all of that but once they start flying in that coordinated pattern um I've read that they're ba basically each bird is just following very simple rules. It's mm -hmm. like if, if the bird on my right goes left, then I'll go left. And I always maintain two feet of distance from every other bird, something like that, mm -hmm. where each bird's running this very simple rule set, but the emergent phenomenon is the, the, 
the coordinated mass of, of starlings. And I wonder, there's this, I'm just trying to connect that then these very simple rules emerging into complex behavior in the collective. And as humans, a lot of the rules we're following tend to be related to economics, right? It's like private property rights and the price signal in a marketplace is telling us what to do, telling us what consumers want. And we know that when we print money, we distort that price signal. So we're literally, I mean, typically if a price goes up, that tells you more people want more of something. But if a central bank is just printing money, then that price signal could just as easily say, oh, you know, the central bank policy has changed, although nobody's wants have actually changed. So it's it's distorting these rules that that guide us and coordinate us. It actually makes the prices more meaningless, right? The price contains less meaning. So mm. I think it's interesting that that might manifest as more meaninglessness in our lives. And I mean, you could look at this in the extreme case of a hyperinflation. I would say you could reliably induce a mass formation psychosis by just hyperinflating the currency. When you hyperinflate mm-hmm. the currency, people literally go crazy. You know, you can't, there's no mechanism of trust for, with strangers anymore. You're kind of reduced to just the family unit. And you mentioned all these historical examples, Salem witch trials, Nazism, Stalinism. I mean, at least those three I know had uh, money printing in and around them, supporting them. So is, the, is it possible that there's some connection between, let's say, the inflation of currency or perhaps more generally just the violation of private property, which is like the socioeconomic rule set that's coordinating our movements? Is there some connection perhaps between these and the onset of mass formation psychosis? Oh, there definitely is. Uh, but, but it just usually when a, in a fruitful a well-organized society, there is a so-called symbolic framework, a set of rules, a set of principles, a set of laws as well, uh, which everyone or which are respected to a certain extent and which organize and structure society. And every large-scale mass formation leads to the transgression, the violation of these rules and the symbolic structure. That's very well known. For instance, uh, if you read uh, the book of Solzhenitsyn, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, uh, Archipelago, where Solzhenitsyn describes his experiences um, in uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, look, it's there. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. So there you will see that one of the first chapters, I think the third or the fourth one, I'm not sure, uh, is titled, There is no law. And that's so typical for mass formation and also for the totalitarian state systems, which are based on um uh mass formation that there are no stable principles in laws anymore and that ultimately leads to to uh, the destruction of um of a uh, large segments of the population also of, of society in general so it's 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 maybe too to uh, bring us too far i think to, to to discuss this in detail but totalitarian leaders typically um, rule uh, on the basis of simple rules that can change every day. They, so they, 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 they abolish the law and they, 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 they just impose new sets of rules every day which can change every day and which drive the population mad un- un- 
except this part of the population, which is really in the grip of the mass formation and which accepts the rules, no matter how absurd they become. And that was something that happened in the Corona crisis as well, of course. There were these, these, all these rules, all these measures, all these mandates, which were in many respects utterly absurd, which could change every day. And many people told me, like, now uh, the so society will wake up. The rules become too absurd. Now people will see it and, and they will wake up. And I warned them, they won't. They won't. These, this 20 or 30% of the population that is really in the grip of the mass hypnosis, which is really uh, uh, hypnotized because mass formation is exactly the same psychological mechanism as hypnosis. So it's, it's identical to hypnosis. Well, people who are really in the grip of this mass formation uh, will never wake up because uh, the, 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 the rules that are stipulated by the narrative uh, they believe in um, become absurd. Not at all. It's even, even the opposite will, will happen. The more absurd the rules become, the more they will be applauded by the people who are really in the grip of mass formation. Simply because all these rules, all these practical behaviors imposed by the, by the mass narrative function have the function of a ritual and the ritual ritualistic behavior is always behavior that has no pragmatic meaning that has no pragmatic purpose and that always demands a sacrifice of the individual a sacrifice through which the individual shows that its own individual interests or less important than the collective interest. So that is a ritual. The ritual creates a certain bond. It creates a certain bond. It, and, 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 and just through this specific characteristic that it demands every individual to show that the collective is more important by sacrificing something that is important to itself. And that's uh, exactly the reason. So that, 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 as you said, indeed, that's why mass formation always imposes absurd new measures which and new behaviors which violate uh, all normal laws and principles because normal laws and principles are exactly made to protect the individual, <laughs> to protect the individual and to, and to make sure that the collective uh, always has the function to guarantee uh, that the individual uh, will have a safe space in which it can, in which it can lead his, his individual life. So that disappears in a mass. In a mass, a mass formation is an, an end totalitarianism, is a, a kind of extreme collectivism in which the collective destroys all the individuals in it. That's mass formation. Hmm. It's extreme collectivism. And then totalitarianism is extreme collectivism. And a, a mass um, uh, doesn't allow uh, any individuality deviating from the group norm. That's exact. That's what Kennedy says. And that's uh, exact. It's, that's right. It's, it's a uh, mass formation is extreme collectivism. It's, it's, and, and, yeah. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, yeah, very fascinating. Um, and also kind of horrible in a way that we're subject to this, but I guess in some ways, this is also the great human strength, right? Our ability to coordinate ourselves but kind of just taken down a pathological pathway where instead of following rules collectively that are, you know, presumably just fair, immutable, you know, 
evenly applicable to everyone, we end up following some ruler and his arbitrary or rulers and the arbitrary changes related there. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. So we, we, we touched on the fact that technology shapes the character of these mass formations, that it's changed in the 20th century from what it used to be. And another thing I, I would highlight here is, you know, to, aspiring totalitarians typically do two things first. They try to take over the media and they try to take over the money. And I, I think this is, I mean, this is, you know, words and prices, if you will, as the coordinating mechanisms of a society. Maybe those are perhaps the primary ingredients of that symbolic structure you described, right? You need to be able to control the media narrative and control the flow of capital basically to construct these symbolic structures. Do you think the, the present upheaval we're seeing in the world is because there's been this tectonic shift in the media and money landscape? Like we've, we've gone from top down media, 20th century media model to this uh, many to many digital media model, right? Which we're, we're engaging in now with this podcast and, there's the intellectual dark web. There's all this, all these other sources of information, I guess, where people can escape that top-down model and go into more of a peer-to-peer -peer model. And we see something similar in money too, that people now can leave fiat currency and go into a money that nobody can print like Bitcoin. Um, is, is part of this upheaval then the, I hate to use the word elites, but the people that are in power in the old media paradigm, are they now scrambling to get in a position of power in the new media and money paradigm? Is that what is that the turbulence or a contributor to the turbulence we're seeing in the world? I don't know. It, it seems that 
It's the first time that I take this perspective that you mentioned there because it's interesting. On the one, on the, on the one hand, indeed, we see how the symbolic power, the power to create the narratives that guide society, that structure society, becomes more and more concentrated in less and less hands. And so there are there's a, a very limited amount of people that uh, dominates the mass media, I think, on the one hand. But indeed, at the same time, also the opposite process uh, happens in society, where more and more people through the mass media can communicate, can bring their own narrative um, uh, and distribute it uh, in, in, the, in the social space. That's also true. There are these, these, these two processes happen parallel to each other. And they probably, we probably will see a kind of a polarization between the two. We see indeed how this limited set of people that, for instance, the, 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 the people who um, uh, disseminated the corona narrative, we see how these people use more and more utter censorship uh, to, uh, to, to control um, the stream of information on the social media, for instance. We've all noticed that, how certain posts were censored, how people were blocked, how people were removed from LinkedIn, and so on. So we see indeed, we see something like a kind of a polarization between on the one hand, uh, the, the, the ever more uh, limited and small group of people who uh, possess or who, who own uh, the mass media, who control the, 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 the mainstream media, and then uh, the ever-growing number of people who express their opinion and who distribute their own narratives uh, through podcasts, uh, social media, uh, and so on. Um, yes, that are two very interesting uh, processes that happen parallel to each other. Um, I think, well, you know, in the end, I think it's, it's extremely important to realize that in emerging totalitarianism, the most fundamental factor is never the elite. It's something very important, I think. Um, in this respect that in a classical dictatorship, the point of gravity of the system is always situated in the elite. It's the dictatorial regime that is the most important factor uh, in a dictatorship. And if you destroy a substantial part of the di dictatorial regime, then you will see that usually the system will collapse. In a totalitarian system, this isn't true. In a, in a totalitarian system, a part of the totalitarian elite is destroyed, it's usually replaced and the system continues as nothing happened. That's exactly why Stalin knew that he could eliminate, liquidate 60% of his communist party members, that the system that they would just be replaced and that the system would, uh, would continue. The point of gravity is rather situated in a totalitarian system in the mass. So in this part of the population, mm -hmm. which fanatically believes in the narrative and which is in the grip of, of, of a certain ideology and which will uh, endlessly uh, put forward and deliver new people who uh, can replace the part of the elite that is eliminated. And even more fundamental than the elite and the masses 
is the ideology. That's the point. So the, 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 it is, we should situate the ultimate enemy, the ultimate, the root cause of totalitarianism at the level of a certain view on man and the world, a certain ideology. And the Soviet Union, that was uh, historical materialism of Marx. In Nazi Germany, the ideology was a certain race theory. Now, in this crisis, I think, or in, in, in our uh, epoch, what the, this, the ideology uh, is, uh, is transhumanism or, or a certain technocratic ideology. Uh, but, and all these, in the end, um, uh, there is only one basic ideology. It's the, it's the fundamental view on men in the world, which is typical for uh, Western culture as it emerged starting from the 16th century onwards. Uh, and that is the so-called mechanist view on men in the world. That's the, that's the ultimate cause of the phenomenon of totalitarianism, whether we are talking about the Soviet Union or of Nazi Germany or the kind of system that is emerging now, uh, which is not a fascist totalitarianism or not a communist totalitarianism. What we are seeing now is the emergence of a technocratic totalitarianism, a totalitarianism led by uh, experts, bureaucrats and technocrats, not by gang leaders such as Stalin and Hitler, to use the words of uh, Hannah Arendt. So this, this, but every time that the ultimate uh, ideological ground on which totalitarianism flourishes is always mechanist ideology. That means a kind of view of man in the world, which believes that the entire universe is a, is a dead machine, uh, a set of elementary particles, molecules, atoms that all interact with each other according to the laws of mechanics. And most important, that can perfectly be described, controlled and manipulated in a rational way. So human rational understanding is uh, believed to have the capacity to um, understand everything, explain everything, control everything, uh, and to be the guiding force uh, in, in, in society. So that's the illusion, I think, on which uh, mechanist materialist ideology is based. And it is that ideology that is exactly what I explained in my book. It's that ideology that creates through a series of steps, one, this social disconnectedness, this, this disconnection between individuals and their social and natural environment. And also, so it's this ideology, this way of thinking that creates these conditions in, in the population that are necessary for mass formation. And it's also this ideology that created a new elite a new elite uh, that uses or that believes that propaganda and indoctrination are the foremost uh, instruments to control the population, to lead the population, and to organize and structure society. So that's our two parallel processes. On the one hand, throughout the last few hundred years, we have seen the emergence of a mass formation that was uh, that continued longer and longer, that lasted longer and longer, and that became more and more powerful just because the conditions for mass formation were more and more fulfilled. There was more and more loneliness as a consequence of uh, this mechanistic thinking, this mechanist view on man and the world. And on the other hand, so on the one hand, this mechanist ideology created the conditions that led to mass formation in the population. And on the other hand, it created a new elite, a new elite with different characteristics than, for instance, the religious elite uh, of ancient times, 
with different characteristics, with different tools to control the population, with a different uh, uh, way of thinking, with a different uh, ethical and moral norms, uh, and so on. And it is this, yeah, as Hannah Arendt said, this diabolic pact between this new elite, this mechanist elite, and this new population, this, this new mass, this new crowd, uh, that time and time again leads to the emergence of uh, totalitarian systems. So totalitarian systems, very important, did not exist before the 20th century. They emerged for the first time in the 20th century. Before the 20th century, there was no such thing as totalitarianism. Before the 20th century, there were classical dictatorships, there were tyrannies, but there was no totalitarian systems. And that was simply because before the 20th century, uh, the masses were not large enough, they didn't last long enough, uh, and the elite uh, uh, didn't have mass media at its disposal to manipulate the masses. So, and these things changed together. And in the 20th century, uh, both the elite and the population were ready for very, lo very long-term mass formation, which, in which the masses could control the uh, state machinery and could uh, create uh, a new kind of totalitarian state, a, a state, a state which uh, doesn't only control public space and political space, such as a classical dictatorship does, but which also controls uh, private space. Uh, and that's why, because the totalitarian state has a huge secret police, which is this part of the population that fanatically believes in a state narrative, and that is always willing to snitch and report everyone also in his own family who doesn't go along with the, with the state narrative. So that's why that's why a totalitarian state has this suffocating, a much more suffocating impact on the population uh, compared to uh, classical dictatorship. Yeah, it's a great point. I'm reminded of that Ron Paul quote that um, it's no coincidence that the 20th century was the century of total war and the century of central banking. And I guess we could add to that also the century of totalitarianism there seems to be some connection, right? Um, and maybe this this whole idea, this these attempts to control people also seem to resonate from a materialist paradigm, right? It's where it's almost like a flawed metaphysics, perhaps even that you, the idea that you can move people around like chess pieces on a chessboard mm -hmm. and that there's no, there's no imperfect information, right? There's no uh, unforeseen consequences or unintended consequences. But that entire paradigm fails to observe the self-organization we see in nature, right? The flock of starlings doesn't have a little tyrant telling them what to do. They're entirely self-organized on simple rules. Um, so you don't need like this idea that we need to be managed or we need to be tyrannized to, to make society work. It's just it just totally doesn't hold up to, I guess, complexity theory. So maybe we're still dealing with the, the detritus from Newtonian physics, where we think no, everything's no. a clockwork universe. But now, you know, obviously today we know it's much more, we know the limits of knowledge, basically, and your book goes into that uh, deeply, where if you follow science far enough, you realize that science can only take you so far, basically. Hmm. Um, and all of this so all these attempts then to control people coming from a materialist paradigm also built on the hubris that we, that humans are even capable of constructing a utopia. I mean, that always seems to be the false promise in these ideologies is just do this thing. 
and we'll get to the promised land or we'll get to the, you know, the Marxist utopia, whatever it may be. Um, but all of that fails to account for just the natural complexity of, of human, human affairs, right? That we are a complex dynamical system uh, that cannot be managed any more than the weather can be managed, right? Um, although I think there are attempts being made at that now as well. So what, you know, I don't, the thing that jumps out at me here is it seems like fiat money in particular, it is a misrepresentation of money. You're mis, you're using a currency that can be counterfeited to control an economy. So it doesn't map on to time and energy anymore, which money is intended to symbolize. So is it, is it perhaps the corruption of that tool itself is then being used to fund all these other corrupt activities, like controlling the media apparatus, um, you know, controlling the narratives more generally. Is there just some, there seems to be some thread here. Like if you inject a lie into the money, then you end up living a lie in your society. <laughs> um, do you understand what I'm trying to say here? I'm trying to tease this point out, but I'm not exactly sure how to say it. Yes, I think so. I, I, I agree definitely that um, this entire idea to try to, to control uh, the population is something like, uh, is part of the broader attempt uh, to control nature and everything through rational understanding. And this, this, this was exactly what characterized the tradition of enlightenment, what characterized the entire enthusiasm uh, about the emergence of uh, science in our society. It was the idea that if we understand the world, we'll be able to control it, we'll be able to change it. Uh, we will be able to uh, change it to this extent that we will be able to uh, prevent people from dying, that we will live eternally, that we will be able to eliminate all suffering and all the unhappiness in life. Um, that, that's something that, for instance, is very clearly described by Yuval Harari in his uh, book, uh, Homo Deus, but uh, in the 19th century, uh, several enlightenment, enlightenment thinkers expressed the same ideas, like uh, the human being can become godlike, it can become God, it can live forever, it can um, um, yeah, eliminate all disease, sickness, and suffering, and so on. Um, so it's, it's it's all part of, and and then of course, well, uh, this 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 is this entire uh, attempt to control nature and to control everything, also um, happened at the level of society. People try to understand how society worked. They try to understand how the masses uh, behave, how, how the masses, they try to understand the laws that determine the behavior of the masses. And they try to construct a psychological a techniques and strate strategies, um, propaganda and indoctrination to control the masses. Um, so it's all part of the same. You mentioned the word hubris, the idea that a uh, human being uh, can, yeah, become omnipotent uh, through its capacity to rationally uh, of rational to, to rational rational understanding uh, i believe indeed that in a certain way we believe that 
Uh, this is a scientific view of man and the world, but it's not actually. Or at least if you look at the work of the seminal scientists, the founding fathers of science, whether we are talking about Newton, Balyash, uh, Einstein, uh, Schrödinger, Planck, Heisenberg, Bohr, Mandelbrot, uh, Lorenz, uh, René Tom, doesn't matter. You can, the list is endless. Uh, they all concluded, they, most of them started from a mechanist, materialist, rationalist view of man in the world. But all of, all of them left it behind uh, somewhere on the way. They all concluded that, and I will quote René Tom, literally, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. And the rest of reality we can only understand by empathically resonating with it. That's what they concluded. They concluded that uh, rational understanding is one way to know the world, but that it is very limited in its capacity to understand the world and to know the world. And that we need this other way of knowing the world, which is much more a resonating way. Um, if we want to really be in touch with the essence of life and with the essence of nature, rational understanding is the first step, but not the ultimate. All rational understanding should transcend itself and lead to uh, a different kind of understanding, this resonating understanding, which is the real understanding and the real way to be in touch with uh, the essence of life and of, and, uh, and, and of nature around us. That's what, for instance, the samurai tradition and besides most ancient mystical uh, traditions um, knew very well. They, when, for, for instance, they, 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 they said that when you learn an art or a craft or something, for instance, the martial arts, there is always first this rational stage in which you learn a series of techniques. And if you practice these techniques time and time again, time and time again, this, these techniques can be rationally understood. They explain why this technique leads to this effect and so on. If you practice these techniques long enough, you will slowly start to develop a different knowledge, which is much more a feeling, a resonating knowledge. And it's this knowledge that is the end goal of the, the aim uh, at which you should aim. And the rational stage, all the rational techniques, in the end, should be left behind. That's what they said. They said, you first have to protect the rules of an art and then you have to break them and leave them behind. And the samurai said something very important. They said, it's difficult to learn a technique. It takes a lot of time to learn a technique, but it's even more difficult to forget it again. And if you don't forget it again, before you go to the battlefield, they were talking about the techniques of martial arts. If you, for, if you don't succeed in forgetting it again, before you go to the battlefield, you will die on the battlefield. So that's rational knowledge. Is at the same time a way to learn something. And at the same time, it makes you also blind for something. And it's only the first steps towards the real knowledge, which is the resonating knowledge. And that's the, the major basic problem of our culture and our society, I think. We, believe that rational knowledge is the ultimate knowledge. And um, in our society, our society thinks that human living together 
should be based on rational understanding. That rationality is the cornerstone of human living together. That's not true. You can never base a society on rational understanding. It's a different way of knowledge that we need. A different way of knowledge which brings us in a resonating, in, a, in resonance with things outside of us and which brings us in touch with um, the eternal principles of life. That's how I often call it. Eternal ethical, ethical principles. The eternal uh, principles of life um, are principles that we have to reinvent time and time again that can never be articulated in a definitive way. Uh, but that, that, that make us feel uh, what uh, we should do uh, in order to experience harmony in our uh, relationship with other people and with, with nature around us. I, I noticed that very well in my own life. Uh, it took me until I was 35 years old before I started suddenly, saw, was able to understand that nature around us is not rational. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was studying complex dynamical systems theory and the mathematical basis of complex dynamical systems theory. And I suddenly understood that what complex dynamical systems theory came to teach us was exactly this, that all complex dynamical phenomena in nature, which is most phenomena in nature, essentially behave in an irrational way. Literally, mm -hmm. they behave as irrational numbers, strictly unpredictable, strictly unpredictable. For instance, that's to, to name only one thing. And as soon as I started to understand that, as soon as I, I started to become aware of the fact that no matter how far I pushed my rational understanding, I would never be capable by grasping the core and the essence of my life and of life around me with it. And you're, I think almost literally, when you become aware of the limits of your logical rational understanding, you start to resonate with the things around you. It is as if logically and logic, when we try to, when you are convinced that we can logically understand everything around us, it is as, as if we build a wall with all logical ideas. We connect the one logical idea to the other. And in this way, we isolate ourselves from the mystery of life around us. Literally, if we believe that everything can be understood in a logical way, can be explained in a logical way, we don't see the mystery of life around us anymore. And I think quite literally, when we become aware of the limits of our own rationality, it is as if all these logical building blocks slide away a little bit from each other, and as if the eternal music of life can go through the holes, the little holes in the wall, and touch the strings of our own being. I've often said it like that, and I also describe it like that in my book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. The human being is literally a kind of a string instrument. Our muscles are like cords or strings on our skeleton. Our entire soul, our thing, is, has something of a string instrument. And if that string instrument can, can start to resonate with the eternal music of life around us, it's then at that moment that we feel that we really know the world around us without being capable of possessing it in a set of rational statements. 
and we, we, we can participate in the eternal vibration of life for a moment. Feel that we make part of it, that you are part of it. And in this way, that I think, in retrospect, that's also why at the moment I started to become aware of the limitations of, of rational understanding. I also could tolerate the idea of dead and dying much better. I think it's just a spontaneous effect that when you are aware of the limits of your understanding and you can accept them, and you can connect to the mystery, the eternal mystery of life around us through resonating with it, you just feel that you're part of something eternal and that has not the same effect, is not as anxiety provoking anymore than it was when you believed that you could explain everything in the categories of your own uh, logics. Mm. Um, so um, I think that in the end, um, the first step towards a real solution, towards a, a new view on man in the world, a new view on man in the world, which can deliver the principles for a fruitful and a truly humane human living together uh, is that we see that science maybe delivered us some rational understanding of the world around us, but that in the first place, it showed us that our rational understanding will always be highly limited and that the core of life and the essence of life will always escape our rational understanding and hence that if we try to reduce everything to our rational understanding, there is no other possibility than that we destroy the essence of life and that we, that we destroy life itself and that we destroy humanity itself. Beautiful, beautifully said and, and haunting and its implications. Um, given that we live in a world where most people today believe logical or propositional knowledge is the ultimate form of knowledge and that's i don't know it, it, almost intuitively not the case i guess if you lived enough life like you said it i mean at a younger age i think i was much more rationalistic propositional but as you get older as you said around the age of 35 you start to see things a little bit differently um and maybe the these logical building blocks Again, back to that symbolic structure, right? It's um, it's a bit paradoxical because we need the symbolic structure to reveal things, but at the same time, the symbolic structures conceal things, right? Where they're they're useful fictions or they're mapping this territory of reality. Um, but when we start to mistake the map for the territory, that's when we get really, uh, I guess, psychotic in a way, right? We start to think we can control things and that we dominate nature rather than just participate in it. Um, all of these uh, worldviews, I think, contribute to mass formation itself. And I loved your example in the book of, of human beings as stringed, in, stringed instruments uh, and the idea of us you know, harmonizing with one another. This speaks to the musicality of life itself and even the word, the universe, right? The universe means one song. I think musicality is probably the word that most aptly describes reality. It seems like it's just a lot of oscillating patterns interacting with one another. Um, 
they rhyme, you know, history rhymes, but it doesn't repeat kind of like a song, something like that. And the, one of the examples you gave in your book too, is this extends beyond just human beings. This is everything. Everything's a vibrational pattern. The pendulums on the wall you described of the one experimenter, if you just put a bunch of these swinging pendulums on one wall, that eventually they would just self-synchronize. And um, I, again, I can't help but think maybe this explains memetics to some extent, that it's just these, these different vibrational patterns coming in contact with one another. They start to mutually take on one another's characteristics, whether these are you know, humans or pendulums. Uh, it doesn't really matter at that level of analysis. And um, yeah, you know, rationality, it, it's so important, useful for, for training or learning something new, but you have the aim, I guess rationality is used to deal with the novelty, but the aim is ultimately to, to automize that action or activity, you know, for dancing. If you're going to learn ballroom dancing, you might be thinking about your feet at first when you're learning, but the, the goal is to not be able to think at all about it. You just get out there and dance. So, um, yeah, maybe we've got it backwards in the world today that we need, need to put rational or logical understanding in its place below empathic understanding. Um, yeah, all, all beautiful points here. Um, what, I mean, I'll just maybe finish with this. How would you suggest people uh, reprogram themselves, if you will, out of this rationalistic, materialistic worldview that we've all inherited? How can people unplug themselves from that conditioning and reprogram themselves towards this uh, more empathic understanding or participation with the world as you describe it? I could answer with a paradox. I think they have to be as rational as possible. <laughs> and, 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 and then if you walk in a sincere and a honest way on the path of rationality, you will soon or sooner or later reach the end of the path where you will find out that uh, at a certain moment, moment, you reach the utter limit of rationality and that there is a land before you that you cannot enter uh, uh, through rationality. That, that's, that's the most thorough and the most profound way to become aware of the fact that all rationality, all rational understanding is very limited. That's how the, the, the great scientists uh, came to the conclusion that in the end, um, the essence of life uh, can never be grasped in a rational way. For instance, Niels Bohr said, I've studied uh, atoms, molecules and atoms uh, my entire life. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. And he was dead serious when he said that. He really meant it. He meant that logical language cannot grasp the fundamentally rational behavior of elementary particles. You need poetic or mystical language uh, in order to, to evoke something, to grasp something of this strange uh, but uh, magnificent behavior of elementary particles. So that's one way. 
So uh, to 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 if you if you're if you uh, try to think rationally and if you read scientific literature, for instance, uh, you will soon see that uh, uh, science that's exactly the ultimate insight of science, namely that the essence of life is not rational. At the same time, I think what's crucial is that people continue to articulate uh, their own opinion in public space, can be everywhere, in a shop, at the kitchen table, on a market, no matter where, but people should do their best, I think, to continue to articulate their own opinion. They have to make their own music, you could say. They have to articulate their own words. And just because it's, there's something in the Talmud which says, there, there is a proverb in the Talmud which says, if you don't articulate the words that emerge in yourself and that seem sincere and honest, you will slowly start to lose your soul. And that's true. And also it's, it's important in every respect. For instance, mass, masses, in times of mass formation, it's extremely important to continue to speak out. Uh, masses have a typical tendency, I uh, mentioned that uh, in the beginning of our conversation, to become radically intolerant for dissonant voices, and in the end, to try to stigmatize, excommunicate, and destroy the people who do not go along with them. And that typically happens in the last stage of mass formation. And Gustave Le Bon in the 19th century mentioned already that if there is a large-scale mass formation somewhere, that there is always a group who is resistant, who is resilient, who for one reason or another doesn't fall prey to the mass formation. And this group typically tries to wake up the people in the masses. They try to show them how absurd things are they believe in. And Gustave Le Bon said that this small group usually won't succeed in waking up the masses because mass formation is a type of hypnosis which is extremely strong. But Gustave Le Bon said, it's not because these people don't succeed in waking up the masses that their speech has no effect. Their speech has an effect, an extremely important effect. It constantly disturbs the process of mass formation and it prevents the process of going so deep that the masses and their leaders become convinced hmm. that they should destroy everyone who doesn't go along with them. So that's a crucial effect. Hmm. One of the most important advices I gave in my book is that we should do our best to continue to speak out because in this way, we will prevent the masses of destroying the people who do not go along with them. And in this way, we will just uh, uh, also, even more important, I think, we will go through a faster process of evolution at the mental level, at the psychological level. I've seen this, uh, th this has been observed time and time again. When the world dehumanizes and certain people do their best, react by becoming, by sticking to the principles of humanity themselves. So when they do not participate in the dehumanizing process, these people typically go through a very fast mental evolution. They start to become more and more in touch 
but the elementary principles of humanity and they the level of consciousness becomes on a very fast rate higher and higher and that's the entire purpose in the entire meaning of this process i think what we are seeing now what we're observing now is a process in which a large organism a mass mainstream dominant society puts a lot of pressure on a small group of people who doesn't go along with them and in this way it pushes this group on a path a small path where they would not go on if it were not of the pressure of the large group and in that way if this group makes the right choice if it chooses to stick to the principles of, principles of humanity in the first place if it chooses to continue to speak out because for me that's the most fundamental ethical principle for a human being to try to articulate words to try to speak out speak up to try to articulate these words that seem sincere and honest in that case this group will go through a very fast evolution it will in a renewed way discover the principles of humanity and at the same time when the masses have exhausted themselves because that's what masses typically do they are always self-destructive and they always exhaust themselves at the moment at a certain moment the small group will become the most powerful group because it becomes stronger and stronger and it will deliver the principles for a new truly new way of human living together and for a truly new view of man and the world uh, which is historically the view that uh, follows the mechanist view on man and the world which believes that rational understanding was the cornerstone of human living together um, so that's what we have to keep in mind we shouldn't try to predict too much what will happen because that's impossible we should focus all our energy on the principles of humanity and we should be as determined as possible as immovable as possible in the following of these principles try to rediscover them re-articulate them because the principles of humanity can never be articulated in a definitive way we always have to everyone has to reinvent them and re-articulate them in his own way because only then it are truly his own principles and only then he will he will live a life that is truly his own life he should never accept that someone else imposes these principles of humanity in a definitive way uh, everybody has the right to rediscover them uh, him or herself uh, but that is the true meaning i think of the process we are going through now if we look at this at it at this process from time to time from such an angle we will see that we live in wonderful times uh, difficult times but times that will lead to something truly new uh, something so beautiful uh, that we cannot uh, uh, understand it now something to look i guess some light at the end of the tunnel at least to orient ourselves against thank you for that and i love this idea of using rationality to find the limits of rationality. That's exactly what you said the scientific enterprise basically did, right? The great scientists went through those pathways, explored them to their limits, and then really reached this level of empathy or participatory knowing, some other form of engaging with reality. And it reminds me somewhat of that old, I forget where this saying comes from, but those who seek enlightenment 
will not find it, but only those who seek it will find it. You have to use the rationality as a means to the end of transcending the rationality, which is paradoxical, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. a good way of going about it. And then you arrive at this, I think what you're describing here is like, speak the truth, right? Say things that are honest at every level of your being, engage in acts of creation. And then the other one that we didn't talk about as much, but I think the use of humor to point out the hypocrisy mm-hmm. seems to be very effective because the humor will spread, you know, it, it speaks to people on multiple levels and it really devitalizes the totalitarian mechanism or apparatus or individuals you know if you make fun of them it just totally um robs them of their power i guess to some extent um yeah we're coming up on time i've really enjoyed this conversation you know i think about this a lot um i think it's just a very relevant topic you know um as dr malone said even just using this terminology mass formation psychosis gives people the lexicon to deal with this complicated cultural phenomenon. Whereas without the word, it's just some kind of free floating anxiety. But now, you know, your work is helping to crystallize that into something that's grippable and manageable. So thank you for that. Um, Could you please let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? uh, Should they so like to? Hmm. My book is available uh, I don't know exactly the websites, but it's available through the website of my publisher, uh, Chelsea Green. Uh, it's also available on Amazon, of course, but well, Amazon, you know, <laughs> um, it's uh, available through several, on several online platforms. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, and I will soon start a Substack where I will, where I will publish uh, short articles um, uh, that... Uh, dive deeper into uh, uh, both individual psychology and mass psychology and also uh, the broader cultural societal processes that are going on. Uh, So yes, I hope uh, to see some of you guys on on Substack uh, in a few weeks uh, or on Facebook, but most of the posts I make on Facebook are in Dutch. and it's, well, uh, I intend to publish posts in a more systematic way in a few weeks uh, on Substack. And of course, my book, my book uh, about uh, um, the way in which the mechanist ideology, mechanist materialist ideology led to mass formation, um, totalitarianism, and then uh, also the way in which we can transcend this mechanist view of men in the world. Uh, well, that book, uh, summarizes uh, many of my ideas and thoughts. Excellent. And just one more time, the title of the book we discussed today is The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Uh, We'll link to all that in the show notes. Matthias, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me, Robert. It was uh, very nice to have uh, this conversation with you. Thank you.